Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Bethlehem Church Podcast, where our goal is to offer you compelling biblical content to equip you to live an empowered Christian life. Each week, you'll hear a message from our lead pastor, Matt Robinson, or another member of the Bethlehem team. We also host a conversation every week where we unpack different facets of Sunday's message. We're so excited about this message, and we hope it's a blessing to you. Let's jump in. This is going to be a, uh, a unique message, but uh, I honestly, like, I thought when I started off with the whole coastal vibe, and I thought, we'll just have, you know, coastal vibe for our events and all that stuff. It doesn't necessarily have to coordinate with the message. And then I got reading and studying, and the rest is history, and now the title of the message is called The Coastal King. Um, but I don't, I don't feel like it's a stretch, and it's not necessarily a Christmas message, although it has implications. Um, but I, I feel like if you stay with me this morning, as we kind of wind down the path, and, and really the, the way of the sea is really what it's called in Scripture, but if you, if you stay with me this morning, I think that you will be blessed and helped and that you'll, you'll discover some things that, that really and truly helped me that really around biblical geography, where he was born and where he decided to go after he got back from the flight to Egypt. Uh, when I say that, like the flight of Egypt, does that mean anything to anybody in here? You know what I'm talking about when I say that? We'll do a little bit of review. Uh, for some, it'll, it, it'll make sense and fit in the narrative. And for others, maybe you'll, you'll learn some new parts of the story this morning. Um, am I holding that close enough, Kyle? Is that okay? All right. We ditched the, the headset this morning. Um, but yeah, so let's, uh, let's jump in here. I'm, I'm kind of like, I thought I would be fine without a pulpit. Oh, I'm going to be like back and forth from right here to right there. Uh, Carmen, you're amazing. You're doing so good with that camera. Uh, I thought I could do good without a, without a pulpit. I mean, I got these really cool chairs. These things are comfy, man. <laughs> I think uh, I think Mr. Pete got these from uh, Richardson's, but yeah, man, these are nice. Santa's going to sit in that one, and then the kids are going to sit in this one because it's 2021, you know what I'm saying, uh, is what it is. Uh, so anyway, but yeah, man, this is nice. I could get, I could get used to preaching from, let me get me a little table right here, but anyway, I'll be running around a little bit. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 It says this, if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. And name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's the first time that the prophet Isaiah chooses to allude to this. Don, how are you? Good to see you. Uh, it's the first time that, that the prophet decides to allude to uh, this child. If, if you think about it, look, look at the scripture. It says, the virgin will conceive, have a son, name him Emmanuel. He alludes to this child. And then two chapters later, he's going to kind of continue that narrative. And when he talks about this child being born, he's going to give more detail. But what that causes is it sets in order this uh, it's the domino, if you will, this effect that when you read scripture, especially the prophets, he begins a conversation, he begins the narrative, and that, that domino tips and it continues. So what happens in chapter 9 is connected to what's happening in chapter 7. Uh, so therefore, we have this principle that's been established. Uh, hello, God bless you. 
Be sure to silence all cell phones, and if you need to take a call, visit the family room. God bless you. All other phones will self-destruct if they go off during the service. Thank you. Come again. Anyway, um, I was in a rhythm there. What happens in the beginning, that domino effect that continues, we don't just isolate one portion of Scripture. We think about what was said two chapters before, right? And we think about the story and the narrative that he's trying to uh, portray. And so the prophet will then get to chapter 9, which there's some super famous verses that you're all going to recognize when we read them, but we have to think about them in light of also chapter 7. So that's why when I talk about chapter 9, and I say, well, this is talking about Emmanuel. It's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the Messiah that's coming. You don't have to say, well, no, it's not. Why would it be talking about that? I don't see that anywhere there. It happened in chapter what? In chapter 7, he began that conversation. It's already out there. The cat's been let out of the bag. And, and here's something I listen to a lot. How many like podcasts? Anybody? Okay, wow. Let's, all of you, let me, let me tell you about something. It's really cool. It's called a podcast. It will revolutionize your life for the other 95% of you that don't listen to anything. <laughs> I'm assuming you just didn't raise your hand. But anyway, <laughs> I like to listen to podcasts and, and consume content that's not Christian, that's just all over the map. Uh, if some of you saw my playlist in my library, you would be like, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I'm not scared. I don't feel like they're going to, you know, lead me astray. Uh, anyway, so I just kind of listen to a lot of different things, very diverse. But one thing in particular is I listen to this one podcast and it comes up frequently, this idea that Christians and what they believe is sort of outdated, Right, It's sort of this thing that's been proven. Like, everybody knows it didn't really happen. You know what I mean? Like, everybody knows that. This is how they act on the podcast. And I'm like, don't you know that you have Christians that are listening to this? You know what I mean? Like, we're, even some of you are, some of us are patrons, you know, to what you're doing, and we like other aspects of it. But I'm like, don't say that, you know? And then there's, like, another pastor, I'm assuming he listens to it, but another pastor that, like, roasts this podcast, and he, he like, hits play, and then he lets them talk, and then he pauses it, and then he says, so really, what they're saying doesn't make any sense. Anyway, he roasts them. So I like that. Uh, so he, he roasted this specific podcast about how they're just saying, like, oh, yeah, everybody knows that Jesus isn't real. And there's been 20 different Jesuses down through the ages. And look, I just want to, like, point something out. You know what I mean? just want to point something out. This is, like, nobody else has this. Nobody else has got this. And, and I'm not saying like, well, what about the Koran and what about, th those, those are other isolated conversations that we can have. But I, I'm saying like, no one has this. Like written over 1,500 years, 66 books, 40 different authors. And then there's some other materials too that, you know, we in our tradition don't necessarily accept, but I think they're pretty good too. But think about what the Bible does. And what we have in scripture, we're reading a prophet's words hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, he's saying, hey, guess what? A virgin's going to conceive and she's going to bring forth the son. And his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then in chapter 9, he expounds even more and tells where he's going to go, where he's going to come to. Do we have anything else like that? 
I mean, here we are 2,000 years later after the ascension of our Savior, and we're still talking about it. The church is still growing. We have the, we have the Holy Spirit proving, bearing witness in our spirit that it's real. And so I just like, when people say, well, we know it's not real. <laughs> like, okay, you, you may think that, but I know it is real. I know it has been prophesied. Look, if someone comes to me and says, let me explain something to you. This is going to happen in 15 years to the day at this time. And in 15 years to the day at that time, if it happens, I'm going to do my very best to go look that person up. And be like, tell me something else that's going to happen. <laughs> that was pretty crazy. That's what prophets Isaiah the prophet, he said, hey guys, this is going to happen, and then it happened. Like, don't miss that. Don't let people poo-poo on Christianity and, and what you have and what the Lord has given you because the book is here, and it isn't going anywhere, and it hasn't gone anywhere, and people have died for this book. People have died long before this powder puff Christianity that we Americans embrace, People literally put their lives on the line, and people put their lives on the line in other countries and other nations. Why? Because this Christ child, this Jesus, Emmanuel, was a real person, and he came to a real spot, and it was prophesied hundreds of years before. That's amazing. So when we read the book of Isaiah, and he starts telling details and things, like, let it build your faith. Some of us, we just, like, sit there, and we don't say anything. I don't know what to say to coworkers that say it's not true. Are you listening? <laughs> Are you reading? Are you praying? Let yourself be filled. Let the Spirit of God fill you. And then in that moment, let it come out. Share your faith. Tell them, oh, well, no. I mean, do you, is there another book that you know that's more widely spread than the Bible with the stories that it tells that actually came true and like bears witness? Like people from cross cultures. We're talking and getting along with each other. You know that never happened until this book right here. I, I mean, this is like miracles. That's what's happening. Miracles on miracles. Let's embrace it this morning. So we're reading from the prophets from the book of Isaiah. And he says that in chapter 7, a virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and it says this. So we would initially go to, <laughs> my fingers will work. We would go to verse number 6, right, which would be, for a child will be born, uh, will be born for us, for unto us a child is born, right, that, that type of King James language. But for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be, is that a famous passage? Does anybody know that? Okay, right, everybody's with that. Let's go to verse number one, though. What leads up to that? What is the author trying to tell us about this person that is going to be born? And, you know, I submit to you that it is this Emmanuel, this Christ child that is mentioned in chapter 7. But look at verse number one. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, two tribes of Israel. Okay. But in the future, 
he will bring honor. What's it say? To the way of the what? To the way of the sea. It's a boat, guys. <laughs> We're pulling it in. We're pulling it in. I think I just hit my shin. That hurt. But I didn't react. It actually hurt. I'm all whack. The rim of the boat got me before my boot made it to the side of the boat. <laughs> the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea. To the land east of Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. This wording is so interesting. And if I hadn't have like purposefully dove in regarding this idea of coastal and sea and water, I would have missed this. Look at verse number two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. Look at this next spot. And as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. And the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Look at verse number five. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, for unto us a child is born, or for a child will be born for us, sorry. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over the kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Now, does that sound like one full thought? Or just an isolated passage from chapter from verse six to verse nine. Is this uh, this child that will be born the answer to verse one through five? It is, isn't it? This this child that's going to be born will fix two of these issues, uh, two of these tribes' issues first, and that's where he's coming to. And and what are these tribes? Zebulun and Naphtali, two tribes. Of the children of Israel. Is it significant? Well, yeah, it's it's the way of the sea. It's the 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 region of Galilee and the nations of Galilee. That term is actually derogatory, the more I dug into it. When it talks about the nations of Galilee and the way of the sea and those two tribes specifically, what I found is that. The geographical location is actually extremely important. And, and we, go to chap, we, we go to verse 6 on chapter 9 and we say, yes, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Love Jesus. Love him so much while you're clutching your you know, peppermint mocha and your nice boots and socks and warm. And for unto us a child is given. Oh, my goodness. And I, look, I don't want to take anything from you. You know, whatever the holidays mean to you, God bless you and squeeze every ounce of pumpkin spice and peppermint that you can out of the holidays. It's wonderful. But what I don't want, what you're not going to do is act like that wasn't the answer to verse number one through five. 
And so when we dig into what is one through five, it is like this dark land. It is this way of the sea. It's this Galilee positioned community that seems very oppressed. More than that, it talks about how their enemies are going to be conquered and how the Lord is going to bring light into this community. There's significance there. He is our coastal king. He, in fact, did go to this land. So when it positions, when it talks about Galilee, the way of the sea, we, I want to show you this. And how many ever look at the maps in your Bible? Anybody? The same people that listen to podcasts. There's a connection. There's a connection. I knew it. No, I'm teasing. So anyway, I pulled some maps out. It's not like really fancy, but it'll do the trick. Hit that first one. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, you see it right up there, right under Judea, it says Bethlehem. There's a little star, right? There's a star and born. Anyway, you get the point. Uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> so born in Bethlehem. Does anybody remember why he left Bethlehem? The reason he came there, his parents, they were represented from, for taxation, which caused them to come there to Bethlehem. But why didn't he go back to his birthplace? Why wasn't that the center? If he's going to be the king to rule on the throne of David, uh, why did he go to a different place? Well, because the prophet gave the reason why. But we see here that he was born in Bethlehem. Herod, the person at the time, you have to think too, this is like the Roman Empire ruling and reigning with the rod of iron. And the Jewish communities, they would allow to, to, to be there and be subject to them, but they would also allow them to operate uh, synagogues and all, chief priests and all, and they would work with them. So Herod, this fellow had the culture of the Jews, but he had his pocket in with the Romans as governor. So from taxation to he, he was playing the game and he was very wealthy because of it. He did not want to be removed. He did not want to be dethroned, if you will. And when this talk that there's something, and this should tell you, right, the, the extreme action and precaution that he took to eradicate and wipe out uh, the male infants should show you that he made a connection to a prophecy, he made a connection to someone that uh, a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son, and he would be the king of the Jews, God with us. And so when he hears that, when he hears that uh, this Christ child is being born, what does he do? Those are coming to seek him. He's trying to kill him. So when Herod tries to kill him, Mary and Joseph, they flee to Egypt, right? And they take this route. Does anybody see the Mediterranean Sea right there? So... It's, it's, it's the way of the sea, as many dubbed it, based on this like travel pattern close to it. And you got to consider the fact that uh, bringing in goods and ships and ports and all that made it more accessible. So this way was, was traveled a lot. Uh, but he travels this way down to Egypt, but when they established themselves and went back to where Jesus was raised, they passed Bethlehem where he was born, and they went to where? Nazareth. So it comes down to Egypt, and then it goes back up to Nazareth. Do you see the name at the top? What's that say? Galilee. Mm -hmm. the, let me just leave this open here so that I can kind of reference here. Not only do we have this one that's going to be born, 
this Christ child conceived of a virgin, but he says here, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. Why did Jesus go back into that land? Because that's where the prophet said he was going to come from. That's where the prophet said he was going to do ministry from. That's where he was going to set up shop, Capernaum. That's where he would turn the water into what? Come on. That's where he would get on the sea of what? Galilee and calm the storm and venture across to the other side where he would then cast out demons from the demoniac. Not only is this a Christmas passage where we read in chapter 9, yes, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given, but before he got there, they said he's going to come to a specific spot in the nation that is wrecked, that is dark, that is gloomy, the way of the sea. Why is it that way? Because it was a place that was accessible by their enemies. We think about water. I love the water. Probably this year, I've gotten more used to the coastal aspect of this, of this community than ever. And, and there's just something special about it. I, I love where we live. I love my home. Uh, I've lived here now longer than I lived anywhere else as a kid, uh, which is interesting. Uh, we moved around a little bit. But when I go back to Tennessee, I mean, and there's some things I love about Tennessee, which comes out like sack of taters, you know, when I say things like that, <laughs> taters, hallet, anyway. But uh, anyway, this is, this is home. And when we leave, we can't wait to get back, you know, and we see the city skyline and we're like, ah, oh, you know, it's bizarre. It's really weird. I can't explain it. We tried to leave, but the Lord won't let us leave. But now that it's like, no, this is absolutely home. And, and I just love it. And there's something calming about the water. There's, there's just a calming agent about it. When you, when you leave, my sister and I were talking about it, and she was, like, she was talking about like prophetic visions and different things, and she was like, look, you know, it's like you guys are at the edge of the water with a bunch of stuff, and that stuff is going like, to float up, and she's like, talking through all this stuff. I was like, well, when we're at the edge of the water, we have a bunch of stuff. Like, if anybody knows, if you're going out on a boat with a bunch of kids, it's like, you know, you're... <laughs> Like every arm has something in it, you know, and you're just trying to get on the doggone boat, you know, and you're throwing children. You, you resort to just throwing children at that point. But once you get out, it's peaceful. Once you dunk three of them and throw them overboard, you know, sacrifice our children to Middle River. Uh, it didn't happen. Anyway, it's calming. But it, it has implications. The water has implications. I've, in scripture, there's uh, an analogy of chaos, of not knowing you see the top, you know, it's a sheet of glass, but what's happening under the surface, you never know. There's so many biblical illustrations of what water can mean and what it brings. But the idea of ports, port city, understanding the connection and what water did back in that day, it means that it was accessible to enemies. And so what we have here, even in the terminology that Isaiah uses, where it talks about the oppressor and the rods, he's referencing the Assyrians coming and wrecking this northern part of the kingdom. Look, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. 
you know, Zebulun and Naphtali and these tribes, they see physical enemies, physical manifestations of the challenges that they have. But the Lord sees the false gods and the imps of hell behind those, those rulers, behind those enemies. The Lord sees really who the enemy is. Does that make sense? So this specific tribe, this encourages me so much. This specific tribe that was nested in that northern part, Zebulun and Naphtali, was the very place that Jesus took his ministry to. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit more. Go to the, go to the next slide there, the next map. This shows kind of like a, a more zeroed-in approach to what the Sea of Galilee was. And if you think about Capernaum, how close that is to the Sea of Galilee, you get a, a real picture that the Lord's ministry was centered around water, uh, a lot of it. So Mediterranean Sea here, but where he ministered in the Sea of Galilee and in much of Scripture, that's kind of the picture that we get to see. But I want to just bring your attention to this specific text, and I want to walk you through right here in the end of, well, the, really the beginning of chapter 9 of Isaiah and uh, then we'll go to the house. And how many have something real good for lunch today? Anybody? Anybody have something real good? I just need to know where I'm headed after this. Okay, all right. Listen to this. This is an excerpt from the commentary. I think this is really good. All this is in the program, by the way, maybe for a Bible study for you this week to kind of read up on it. Jesus returned to Galilee, breaking his journey at a place in Samaria called Sychar, there he found some eager hearers among people who had recently been influenced by John the Baptist's preaching. When he arrived in Galilee, he made his headquarters in Capernaum and began to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was not a political organization. Maybe we need to say that again five times fast for everybody that thinks the answer is the president, and it's not, right? The kingdom of God is not a political organization. Can we say that again? The kingdom of God. Okay, all right. I think you got the point. It's not a political organization. The Lord's good and can work no matter who's in charge, blue or red. It's not. Okay, all right. <laughs> anyway. It meant the acceptance of the rule of God in the hearts of men and women. According to the principles laid down by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and on other occasions, Capernaum was one of several flourishing fishing towns on the lakeshore. Others uh, were Bethsaida, just east of the point where the Jordan flows into the lake, and Magnala, famed for its export of salt fish, which, uh, for which reason is also known as the Terrachi. Other places mentioned in the narrative uh, of his work in Galilee are uh, Cherizin, a little way inland of Capernaum, Cana, where the water became wine, about nine miles north of Nazareth, and Nain, the south of the Mount of Tabor on the east side of the lake, at which place is called Kersey, the man possessed of the legion of demons was cursed of the herd of pigs, feeding the nearby stampede, sending it down the cliff into the lake. So these coastal lands had been the home to troubled times, times of rebellion and struggle, times of exile, Israel's enemies, the Assyrians, would gain the advantage and the children of Israel would have seasons of tragedy. Now with that understanding and a little bit more context in your mind, think about verses 1 and 2 here. Nevertheless, of Isaiah chapter 9, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land, that land right there, 
will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness, don't miss this, have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those in the land of darkness. Once again, just to reaffirm here, the geographic location of the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali indicate the author is referring to this northern part of Galilee by the way of the sea. This Transjordan area east of the Jordan River, in summary, this verse surprisingly predicts that the least likely area of Israel, the far northern section, that was the most militarily oppressed and the most influenced by pagans, will in some way be honored by God when he sends the new light into the future. Now listen to this psalm that we read during worship. The Lord is my light and my salvation Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? Here's the first thing that we have to understand about this Christ child that came and that was sent into this land. The darkest places of the nations will be illuminated. Look, when we think about the implications of Jesus coming to earth, he grew in wisdom and in stature as a man, but when it was time to begin his ministry... Where did he go? The dirtiest of the dirty, the lowest of the low, the darkest places, the most influenced by pagan culture, that's where he went. (laughs) And Isaiah the prophet says, hey, Zebulun, Naphtali, those areas, the land of the sea, that land that literally no one wants to go because it's been infused with half-breeds, there's Samaritans there, there's people there that aren't uh, fully Jew. Jesus said, that's where I'm going. (laughs) Yeah, the government's going to be on his shoulders. Yes, he'll be the prince of peace and the counselor. And we talk about all that of what baby Jesus in the hay means to us. But what it means is he comes to the darkest corner of your heart. He comes and he gets on the boat. And he goes by way of the sea. He's our coastal king. He comes to the communities that are most wrecked by sin first. We don't need this Christmas season. We don't need a bunch of Christians that get all pretty and act like they got it all together. But you know you have a dark place in your heart that he hasn't gotten to yet. We don't need that. The picture of baby Jesus brings Christ followers around the world to church maybe twice a year. One for Christmas and one for Easter. And it's the brightest part of their life. (laughs) I'm so bright. And Jesus said, I'm a God that goes to the dark places. That's some stuff. He says, no, we're going to pass through. I'm going to be raised in this town. This is where I'm going. And that's where I'm going to set up shop. Because that's where I'm needed the most. Here's another thing I want you to reconcile with this passage. We're talking about hundreds of years apart. Where, there's another, and we'll talk about it in a second, but these two tribes are wrecked. How long have they set desolate? How long have they been in this place where 
They are ruined by the infection of sin and disease. Another thing that the Lord is speaking to me about is, the Lord, the point is this, that the darkest places of the nations will be illuminated. But just wait. He's coming. He's coming. You might think that light is never going to come on. You might, in, in whatever moment or season that you're in, just think they're never going to see it. My son, my daughter, my family member, my coworker, they're never going to see it. And I hear Jesus cackle. I hear him say, yes, they will. I illuminate every dark corner. I come for every person that can't see, that, that are literally blind to their own sin that they have in their lives. Listen, church, be encouraged this morning. Stand strong. He doesn't come to you when you're at your best. He comes to you when you're at your worst. He doesn't come to you when you look good. He comes to you quite the opposite. He comes to you when you have no clue what you're going to do next. That's who baby Jesus is. Whatever you think, whatever in your mind a picture of God has been, if you seclude a part of your life and keep it from him because you're embarrassed, then you don't know my God. That's not what he wants. He wants you, and he wants all of you. And he loves you. Let's kill those fans if we can. People are starting to shiver. Let's kill those. Where's Jen at? I don't know. Mike, can you kill the fans? The remote's right inside that door. You guys are like, <laughs> everybody was hot, just saying. Anyway, the darkest places of the nation will be illuminated. Look at verse number three. You got it right there? Look at verse number three. And if you don't have it, it's in the program. Thanks, Mike. Verse number three says, you have enlarged the nations and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. As they rejoice when dividing the spoils. Don't miss that. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders. Most commentators agree that that is specific language to when Assyrians defeated the Israelites. When the Assyrians put them and enslaved them in yokes, they would use these rods uh, to oppress the children of Israel and essentially use them as slave labor. So in, in the prophet saying that, he's eliciting an image of the worst of the worst enemies. Cody talked about them a little bit last week. He's eliciting an image in their mind, the worst of the worst enemies, these rods, these things that they are oppressing them with. Look at it. Just as you did on the day of Midian, he's going to shatter that. Now look at verse number five. For every trampling boot of battle... And the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Just to give a little context, listen to this verse from Joshua chapter 11, verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for at this time tomorrow I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. There's two different approaches here. When you have an enemy that comes against you and you fight this battle. One is when you defeat the people and you take their spoils or their goods for your own benefit. And the other, the Lord had a way of when, when they were defeated, you took all of their things and you put it together and you burned it. You didn't keep any of it. 
Why? Because it shows that the only thing you needed is the victory that you had in God and not the things that they had to offer. The difference between a victory where we defeat and the Lord says, take of the spoils, and when the Lord says, no, you pile it all up and you burn it, it's never been about those people. It's always about the false God of those people. Believe this, that the wars that we are waging today, they're not wars against each other. It is Satan and the imps of hell versus Yahweh, the one and only true God of Israel. And that God, when he wages war and he wants to make a point, he says, round it all up, put it in a pile and burn it to the ground. You don't need anything they have to offer. I will supply all of your need and I will give you the victory that you need. Here's what God, here's what he's saying in this passage where the, the Christ child would be born. I will bring all of your enemies burned to the ground. <laughs> Especially the ones that have put rods in your back and oppressed you. And here's what I see here. How does this apply to us? So many ways. It applies to us in so many ways. But I thought to myself like, how many of us, not only are there dark places in our heart that we have not let the Lord come and illuminate and shine his good, good gospel grace into, but how many of us are holding on to spoils that the Lord wants us to burn so that we'll have faith in him instead of faith in those things? The Christ child coming means that we don't need anything in this earth. He's given us everything that we need. Do you get the picture? Do you see it? He comes to the worst place, the darkest place, and he turns on the light. And then he says, now that I've declared victory over this land, this forgotten land, this land that has been infiltrated by pagans, look, this defines Gentile nations. It defines when you look at this region, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Nobody wanted to go there. And God said, I literally want them. I love them. I am here to bring victory. I'm here to burn their enemies to the ground. There is nothing that you need to gather of the spoils of this world. When baby Jesus came to this world and he entered in, he came with everything that you need. All of it. Every last bit of it. And so take what you have that you're clinging to, that you're scared to let go of, and let it be burned. Let it be burned. Oh my goodness, what are we holding on to this morning? What are we scared to let go of? Give it to him. Let him do what he wants to do with it. Number one, he'll illuminate the darkest places. Number two, the enemies of the nations will be decimated. Is anybody getting something from this? Is anybody seeing the implications for you? Anybody? Are you seeing this? From this passage of scripture, when, when the Christ child comes, what does it mean for you? It means everything. I, can, I don't know about you, but I can associate with the darkest place. I can associate with the land that, look, it wasn't my land. I was clinging to pagan, all kinds of pagan things. What do I mean by that? I'm saying that if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we rely on this world. And the gods of this world, rather than what the Lord has for us. Now we get to the good part, right? Verse number six. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. 
And the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord's armies will accomplish this. The last thing is just this. The king will reign forever. The king will reign forever. You know, we're... We're in forever as it pertains to that passage of scripture. You know what I mean? Like that kind of where we're at right now is included in that. Does anybody see that? It's included there. It will be forever. And here we are a couple thousand years later, right? Jesus came. We see his plan for the nations playing out in the church. I mean, how many see it? All nations, all tongues, all tribes. People that have, we, talk, we talked about it, died for the scriptures, died for the Lord. They've given themselves. The Lord is coming back. He came once. I mean, he came into his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them, gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Look, at that name, every knee will bow. The king will reign forever. And I, I just want you to get this picture in your mind. The Lord has not forgotten. He's not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness. All of these scriptures come to mind. This story from prophet Isaiah Penning, hey, guess what, guys, in that northern part? He's going to come. And he tethered their victory to him reigning what? Forever. We're a part of that. He has come unto us. Our, the whole first song. What victory and triumph that we have in the Lord. But look, it's no good if you're going to go home and live in defeat. It's no good if you don't get up in the morning and sing praise to the king that will live forever. It's, it's no good if you're living off of your enemy's spoils instead of the sufficient substance that the Lord gives you. You see the connection? It all fits so perfectly together. But what a picture we have this morning, of not, of, not of a Savior that comes to the best part. If the king would have been someone raised up from within, if it would have been one of us, we'd have been like, where's my palace? Let's make this thing nice. <laughs> Whip this up. This is not going to work. If I got all the resources in the world, then we can do a little something else with this. He was born in a manger, in a bed of hay, chased out of his home, all the way to Egypt. And then when he comes back, he chooses to go to an even darker corner. Let that show you the long suffering of our Savior. He wants you, He desires you. He loves you. Will you have him this morning? Will he be your coastal king? Will he illuminate your heart? Will you allow him to supply all of your needs? We have a God that loves us so very much. 
Thanks so much for tuning in for this conversation on the Bethlehem Church Podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. If you want to know more about us, feel free to check out our website at BethlehemChurch.cc. And also in every conversation we publish, you'll find our sermon notes in the description. And we hope that you'll study these topics further. We'll see you next time.